Uh, back in the 90s, uh, Jane and I and the family spent an academic year in the States, in Mississippi. A and I know uh, many of you will have had a similar experience when you came to Australia, but you land in a new place and you become aware both of differences and a desire to fit in. You know, you want to know how the place works, what you need to do to prosper. Uh, for example, learning to drive on the wrong side of the road, which is actually the right side of the road in the States. And then you start to accommodate yourself to the way your neighbours do things. So you start to expect your children to call adults sir and ma'am, dry your washing inside, to even adjust your accent so you can be understood. Now the Israelites are about to enter a new place, the land of promise. Now they'll meet the inhabitants of the land whom the Lord said in Deuteronomy 7 he would only remove little by little. So they'll have time to observe their customs. And even after occupation they'll have neighbours, surrounding neighbours like the Philistines and the Moabites. Those peoples were on the whole wealthier, had a more advanced material culture, a more sophisticated social structure and they had their own gods. And in the ancient world, the widespread view was that the gods were tied to a locality. There was a particular god for each place, and those living in that place depended on the favour of that god for permission to dwell there and for the prosperity of that place. So they depended on the god or the gods of that place for rain, for good seasons, for fertility. To prosper in a place, you had to worship the gods of the place. You had to keep them happy with your sacrifices and your rituals, with showing them respect by respecting their images, which was the sign of their spirit in that place. That assumption about the gods was widespread in the ancient world, and one that it was easy for the Israelites to share, especially as they saw the prosperity of their neighbours. It would be easy for them to think that once they were in the land, they had to worship the gods of the land. Moses knows this. And so in this final part of his first speech, where he's reminded them in chapters 1 to 3 of their journey to the border of the land and on their dependence on the Lord to enter the land, he now speaks to make sure that when they enter the land, they maintain their identity as the people of the Lord wholly committed to him. And so, as you've heard, he reminds them in verses 1 to 8 of what their identity as the people of the Lord consists of and how important it is to be and remain his people. Then in verses 9 to 24, he tells them of how in the coming years they can maintain their identity as the Lord's people. In verses 25 to 31, he prophesies, he speaks of their future and how in the light of their foreseen failure they can still have hope in being the people of the Lord and verses 32 to 39 why that hope can be a confident hope and in all of that he reminds them of how good it is to be the people of the Lord for he is the only God. Now we're going to go through what Moses spoke to Israel on the plains of Moab but God is not just speaking these words to that generation. As we'll see in verses 9 following, one of the features of Deuteronomy is that this is a word addressed to all Israel, generation after generation, across the ages. 
Israel who continued to live surrounded by and dealing with those who worshipped other gods. But it's spoken not just to physical Israel, those with Abraham's DNA. This word is also spoken to believers in Jesus, those who have become children of Abraham through faith in Jesus. The people the Apostle Peter describes in 1 Peter 2 with words taken from Exodus and Hosea as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession who had become that through God's mercy. So these words in Deuteronomy 4 are spoken to us, believers in Jesus. And that's good because we also feel the pressure to conform our identity and practices to the society around us, a society that worships other gods. Now sometimes that pressure is explicit, isn't it? I mean, tweet a Bible verse that calls for repentance and lose your job. Or suggest God is the creator of all and be dismissed as anti-intellectual. But most of the time the challenge to our identity and practice as the Lord's people is like the challenge to Israel. It's the seduction of accepting what everyone takes for granted. The seduction of accepting what everyone takes for granted. So, of course, we all think, Everyone's free on Sundays for sport or work or social occasions. Oh, of course, what you believe about God is private and shouldn't guide your engagement with public affairs because that kind of thing can divide and we all just want to get on. Oh, of course what matters is whether you believe, whether what, makes, whether what you believe makes you feel better or not. Oh, of course people should be free to pursue whatever sexuality feels true to themselves because personal authenticity and happiness is the most important thing. Oh, of course, the good life, the worth of a life, is measured in material security and enjoyable experiences, all just taken for granted. And by those measures, well, shouldn't we feel a little embarrassed about being Christian and wanting others to be? Because whoever sees a happy, authentic Christian? Well, well, you never see them in the media, do you? When did you last see a program that firstly had a genuine Christian, somebody you could recognise as a Christian in it, and secondly, where that Christian wasn't portrayed as a miserable hypocrite making the lives of others miserable? There are challenges in our society to retaining our distinctive identity as Christians, both individually and collectively. Temptations to become like our neighbours, who worship other gods. So, why and how should the Israelites keep on living the distinctive life of the people of God? Why and how should we, believers in Jesus, keep on living the distinctive life of the people of God, preserve our identity as Christians? Well, Moses starts by reminding the people of Israel of where their distinctive identity as the people of the Lord was found, reminding them of what made them the people of the Lord, what was at the heart of belonging to the Lord. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and rules that I'm teaching you and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. 
They have their continuing identity as the Lord's people by listening to the word the Lord, verse 5, commanded Moses to teach them. A word that, as we see as we go through Deuteronomy, will embrace their whole lives. Listening and doing the word of the Lord, that's the core of their relationship with the Lord. That is what makes them his people. Listening to and doing the word of the Lord is how they will be ongoingly the Lord's people living in God's presence in the land God gives them. Listening and doing is how Moses begins this exhortation and as you heard in verse 40, it's how he ends it. Therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today. Listening and doing the word of the Lord is the sum of their worship, their response to their saving God. And Moses says in verse 2, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. They are not to add. That is, they are to do only what the Lord has commanded and then not to subtract. They are to do all that the Lord has commanded. It's by conforming their lives to the Lord's word alone that he will be king amongst them, their king, unchallenged and unrivaled, and they will be his people. And Moses reminds them by referring to their most recent act of rebellion of the importance of listening and doing, that it actually makes the difference between life and death. Verse 3, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, recorded in Numbers, for the Lord your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. Those who abandoned the word of the Lord and worshipped the Baal of that location, Peor, and engaged in the sexual immorality associated with idolatry, they perished. But those who held fast, who listened and did, lived. Listening and doing the word of the Lord is life. And by listening and doing, they will be the blessing to others that Abraham's descendants, that the Lord's people are meant to be, and they will enhance the Lord's reputation. Keep them and do them, Moses said, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Their obedience will make others express admiration, make others recognise how good their distinctive life of trusting and obeying was. And what in particular would make others express admiration? Well, verse 7, it's a real relationship with a real God who is near to help. And verse 8, a life regulated by just and righteous laws that create righteous relationships. And actually both those things are still enviable, aren't they? To not be alone, but to have access to help beyond yourself, to know one who is powerful and committed to you. That's good, isn't it? And to know the right way to live, to have relationships that are just and fair. That's good. Keep on being the Lord's people, says Moses, by listening and doing. 
And our identity as Christians is the same today, isn't it? We are who we are by listening to and doing the word of the Lord. Oh, the word we listen to is different. It's the gospel word that Jesus has died for our sins and risen and reigns with all authority. But like the word of Moses that it fulfills, holding fast to this gospel word is also a matter of life and death. And through holding fast to the gospel, we will also come to have a life that's a blessing to others. A life in relationship with the living God who hears our prayers. A life of love and doing good that enhances the reputation of Jesus. A life that should cause others to recognise how good it is to belong to Jesus' people, the people of the Lord. But that identity is always at risk of being lost as we conform to the thinking and the lifestyle of those around us who worship other gods, even if it is the God of no God but themselves. So how can we maintain our identity as the Lord's people? Well, how is Israel to maintain their distinctive identity in their new context? Only take care. And keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children, how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children too. Firstly, says Moses, verse 9, as time goes by, as you become more distant from your beginnings, be careful not to forget and fail to transmit to the next generation the foundational experience of God's people. Notice that Moses speaks to the people as if they were all there at Mount Horeb. Verse 9, what your eyes have seen. Verse 10, how you stood before the Lord. Yet more than half the people he was speaking to, everyone 40 years and under, were not even born when Israel was at Horeb. But he speaks to all. He includes all his hearers then and across the generation in that experience as if they were there. Why? Well, it's because Moses is asking them, every Israelite, not to forget the foundational event for the existence of the nation of Israel as God's people. As a result of God's redemption, he's bringing the people of Egypt, out of Egypt to himself at Mount Horeb. And because of his gracious revelation of himself there, where he spoke to them directly, the people as a people entered into a covenant relationship with the Lord to be his people and he, their God. And that covenant was a binding commitment on the people and the Lord. It was the foundational event that constituted Israel as the Lord's people, that gave Israelites individually and the nation as a whole, collectively, their identity as the Lord's people. Moses speaks to them all as if they were there because it is only, in a sense, by being there at Horeb, included in the people the Lord addressed, committed to the covenant that was made there, that an Israelite was 
an Israelite. There was no other way. This experience of redemption, revelation, relationship, this foundational experience is something shared by all the people who are the Lord's people. And it's this experience that they must never forget. What they have to transmit by passing on Moses' words. And it's a feature of the experience that Moses emphasises to inform how they are to live in relationship with their God. Verse 12, The Lord spoke you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. The Lord's people will relate to him by his word, not and never by any visible representation. As the relationship began, so it must continue always by his word. You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. Now, believers in Jesus have a foundational event that we must never forget too. But it is not Horeb. What's the foundational experience common to all believers? Well, it's redemption on and through the cross. It's the revelation of God's glory in the gospel of the cross, the revelation of God's glory in Christ and being called by that revelation, by that gospel, to God. Hearing God, Father, Son and Spirit speak to us directly in the gospel and then entering into the new covenant through faith in Jesus, through faith in that gospel word. Believers have to remember this foundational event always. Redemption, revelation, relationship through the cross and the gospel of the cross. And like the Israelites, our beginnings inform how we continue to relate to our God, how we worship him. But more of that later. How should Israel maintain their identity? Remember, don't forget, pass on, don't neglect that foundational event and continue to worship the Lord in the way that's consistent with that revelation by never confusing the creature with the creator, rejecting all physical representations of God, all idols. For as you heard in verse 23, take care lest you forget the covenant which the Lord made and make a carved image. Idolatry is forgetting. Now verses 14 to 19, working backwards through Genesis 1, 26, back to 14, that is day 6 to 4, are a comprehensive rejection of the use of any created thing to portray the Lord. A comprehensive rejection also of the gods of the surrounding nations, many of whom would worship the sun and the moon and represent their gods by statues of created things to bring out an attribute of their god. For example, using an ox as the idol to represent the strength of their god. But at Horeb, Israel saw no form. 
So all idols are just the products of their own imagination and all will be inadequate to represent the creator. He created all. He can't be represented by any created creature, including the stars and the sun and the moon, which he gave to all nations to order the seasons. In fact, idols are a terrible insult to the Lord. So think about it. Idols are visible, limited and dumb. The Lord is invisible, unlimited and he speaks. And yes, in verse 20, he is active to save. He has saved Israel, whereas idols, as you heard in verse 28, they do nothing. They neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Idolatry is an ungrateful forgetting of the covenant. And idolatry, verse 24, is dangerous. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now they had seen that he was a consuming fire at Sinai. Like the fires of Black Saturday, nothing and no one can stand before him. Uh, jealousy has a bad reputation amongst us because human jealousy can be unreasonable, intrusive, ill-founded, controlling. But there is an echo of what is right in even the most distorted human jealousy. You see, we should be active, zealous, to preserve what's right in a relationship between a husband and wife, to preserve what is promised, exclusive commitment, exclusive intimacy to the other. But the Lord's jealousy suffers from none of the faults of our jealousy. It is his active zeal to preserve what is right and proper in his relationship with his people, their exclusive commitment to him. And it's also a jealousy for his own identity and reputation as the God of Israel. You see, the Lord doesn't want to be associated with any fraudulent representation of himself or fraudulent activity in his name. And that's true for us too. We don't want to be represented by frauds. My sister discovered this last Easter that she had had her identity stolen. Now, she didn't just shrug her shoulders and say, oh, that's okay, I can get another one of them. No, right? She spent an exhausting Easter separating herself from those false representations of her and repudiating what had been done in her name, especially the financial transactions. We, we don't want to be represented by frauds. God will not be associated with frauds, with ineffective counterfeits. And it's right and good that God be jealous. It is just. But it is dangerous to provoke God's jealousy, his zeal for his glory, which will not let him be identified with the products of anyone's imagination, his zeal for faithfulness in relationship. Well, at this point you think, so far, all clear. You know, Israel's identity as the people of God is found in their listening to and doing God's word. That's how they'll find life and fulfil God's calling. And in a new environment, they'll maintain that identity by never forgetting the foundational events at Horeb and worshipping God as he has revealed himself there by shunning all idolatry. It's really quite a straightforward program, isn't it? And if Moses stopped there, we could think that what he's giving Israel is a kind of spiritual self-help program, telling them that 
they could keep themselves as the Lord's people, enjoy all the blessings of relationship just by their own hard work. And if that was the message you were getting, that would be quite deceiving. For Israel can't do it, and we can't do it by our own hard work. See, Moses, as you heard, is about to prophesy their failure. But before he does that, he reminds the people in verses 21 to 22 of his own experience to remind them of what God deserves and requires and rightfully expects. Verse 21, Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan. Now Moses is having trouble getting over this, isn't he? Because this is the third time in this speech that he has mentioned his failure to reach the promised land. But think, why was he excluded? Do you remember the story in Numbers 20? The people needed water. And God said to Moses, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give them give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Now that would take a bit of faith, doesn't it? We usually feel stupid talking to inanimate objects like rocks. God's clear, tell the rock, speak to the rock. But what did Moses do? Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. Moses spoke to the people, but he struck the rock. And God's verdict because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring the assembly into the land that I've given you. By doing what he chose and not what God commanded, a failure of faith, Moses did not honour the Lord as the holy God whose word should always be believed and obeyed completely. Yes, completely. Remember what God had said to all at the beginning of this chapter, verse 2. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God. Only and all. Moses added to God's word and he was excluded from the land. Now if Moses who had seen the passing of God's glory, to whom God had revealed himself, who was a faithful servant in God's household, if Moses would not do what God requires, who could? What to do is plain. Listen and do. Remember, not forget, stay away from idols, but Israel will not do it. And the amazing thing is God already knows they won't. Having called on them to remember the past, Moses now goes on and speaks of the future. When you father children and children's children have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, 
I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples. It's amazing, isn't it? Here is God who is jealous, jealous of his name. And yet he has joined himself, joined his reputation to a people he knows will fail him and dishonour his reputation. They will go astray after idols and God will give them up to their sin. Abandoning the God who gave them the land, they will lose the land. Choosing idols, they will, verse 28, get their choice. Gods who are unable to help. And what God says here that they will do we see in the history of Israel that they did over and over again turning to idols. Not because God's commands were bad or idols were better, they're lifeless. Not because they'd not been warned, but because their hearts, not just their actions, were corrupt. But even more amazing is that God says this Sin, this failure, will not be the end of the people of God. Moses gives them hope, but it's not hope in themselves, it's hope in God. From there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. There is a hope of repentance, of returning to God because God is merciful and faithful. Unlike his people, he does not forget his promises. You see, the Lord is determined to have a people and the Lord says he will bring that about. He will keep his covenant with their fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He will give a new heart where they will now, verse 30, obey his voice. They will listen and do. They will truly be his people. And this will happen by mercy. That's right. By the Lord, the jealous God, having compassion on sinners, on idolaters who turn back to him. People who deserve to be consumed by God's just jealousy, the Lord says, will be spared. Now Moses doesn't say how the Lord will do this, how both his justice and mercy in his dealings with his people can coexist, how God can be faithful to both his promise and his warnings. But Moses assures the people that they can be confident. He assures them that what the Lord says of the future is true, that despite their sin there is hope that they can be confident that the Lord's mercy will be effective. He assures them of this by reminding them that the Lord is God, the only God. Moses invites the people to think about what they've come to know of God and to think big. Ask now of the days that are past which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened 
or was ever heard of. So he says, scan world history from creation to the present. Look around at all the peoples on earth. Be thorough, because the Lord's deeds and words will stand scrutiny. Look around and ask, is there anything, anything similar to what you, God's people, have experienced? Where else? Has there been real personal revelation, verse 33, by a God to his people where they heard his voice speaking directly to them? Or where else has there been, verse 34, real salvation, purposeful, effective, redemption, oh, not just rescuing this individual from that fix, but of a whole people against the will of a mighty nation and their gods doing things that only God can do, signs, wonders, great deeds of terror. You see, it's the Lord who sets the standard for what it is to be God. The Lord who speaks and who saves by himself. Are there any others like that? Well, no. He is the only God, verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. And then Moses personalises it to bring it home to his hearers. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. He says to them, Your God is the Lord of heaven and earth, He speaks from heaven, he acts on earth, he is God over all and he is, verse 37, purposeful, effective in saving, delivering on his promises. What he intends, what he says, he does. And so he says, think, where else will you find the living God with such effective grace? Where he acts of himself, out of his own initiative, to freely love and choose. And so says Moses, because your God has spoken and acted, verse 39, know therefore, know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other, no other, to frustrate his will, no other to deny his purposes, no other who can compete. The Lord will have a people. His mercy will triumph. Therefore, verse 40, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments. Therefore, Because the Lord is the speaking God, the saving God, the God who has called you into relationship, the only God. Keep on being his people, listen and do, for that is life. Listen to your God and do what he says. That's the application of Moses' talk for Israel. And actually that's the application for us believers in the only God Father, Son and Spirit through the better word, the gospel word that Christ has died for our sins and risen again to be Lord. It is a better word because by it we receive that mercy 
that Moses spoke of in showing idolatrous Israel mercy, saving them through the death of his son and servant Jesus, Israel's Christ, the Lord has shown mercy on us all. Through Jesus' death, where God enacts his just judgment on sin, all sin, our idolatrous sin included, and at the same time is faithful to his promise to show mercy. Through Jesus' death, where the Lord shows his righteousness in both punishing sin and forgiving by making Jesus the atoning sacrifice for our sin. Through Jesus' death, God the Lord has made the Lord Jesus the saviour of the world, the saviour of all who turn to him and, yes, fulfilled his word by making him the descendant of Abraham, in whom all the nations are blessed. And trusting Jesus, we have come to know for ourselves the God of Israel. We've come to know that he is merciful. That's what we receive. And his mercy is sure and effective. We have come to know that he will have his people and we have come to know that he is the only God. See, so think, what other God has shown he is so unlimited by creation that his eternal word can become flesh, can come and speak to us himself, not through intermediaries, come himself and make himself known to us? What other God than Father, Son and Spirit? Oh, and what other God? is so mighty that he can liberate his people from the great oppressors and enslavers, sin and death. Liberate by the death of the Son. Liberate by the weakness of death, bringing life from death. What other God other than Father, Son and Spirit can establish justice through experiencing human justice? Show that he is so wise as to achieve all his purposes to save his people through the folly of enduring shame and humiliation at the hands of his creatures. What other God other than Father, Son and Spirit speaks and saves himself? Think of the Lord as we have met him in the gospel word of his Son and you know he is the only God with no limits on his power, no compromise in being who he says he is, thoroughly true, always able to achieve what he says. So keep on being the Lord's people by listening and doing the word God has spoken in the gospel because that is life. So never allow yourself as the years go by to forget that foundational event. God calling us to himself through the powerful gospel of Christ's death for sin and his rising. Keep that prominent in your thinking. You say, how? How about giving thanks for it in prayer every day? He's the living God he hears. Reading his word, meeting with his people regularly, or gathering around the Lord's Supper given to us for always remember our Lord's death. And yes, by living it out, the cross-shaped life that Jesus calls us to where we trust him and do his will, knowing that he will raise us from the dead.
Never allow yourself to forget that foundational event. Keep on listening and doing by avoiding all idols. There are idols in our society. Some are named like Allah. Others are just those things like money or pleasure that demand our loyalty and allegiance. But I think the big one in our society is the idol of self, where people are committed to doing their own thing, being their own authority, focusing on their own experience as the revealer of reality, making their experience the measure of right and wrong. Now, where that idolatry of self creeps into our minds, the listening and doing God calls for, where we do all that he has commanded and only what he has commanded, is lost. We become self-directed, judges of God's word, and we move to worshipping a God of our imaginations, a God who will fit in with our experiences and preferences, but who will never save. And with that worship of self will come the very opposite of the response the gospel calls for. The gospel calls us to humbling ourselves in repentance and dependent trust, faith. But where we start to worship the idol of self, we won't rely on grace, on God saving us. No, confident in ourselves, we will become self-reliant. And with that, return to a confidence in our works, what we do to make us and keep us acceptable to God, a confidence that will flatter our own goodness and hardness to the weakness of others. And where that happens, the love that should characterise Jesus' people, true religion, true worship, love, well, that'll be replaced by an ungenerous lovelessness. That idolatry of self is deadly. So keep on being God's people by listening and doing, listening to the gospel word that has established us in relationship with the saving God, Father, Son and Spirit. Maintain yourself in that by never forgetting the cross of your Lord Jesus and don't drift into the idolatry that everyone takes for granted, of course. Know that the Lord, revealed in the justice and mercy of the cross as Father, Son and Spirit, is the only God. And in knowing that, know that he will keep his promise to you. He will raise you from the dead. He will bring you to his holy mountain. In his rich mercy, he will save you completely and forever. So listen and do. Let's pray.